Today on Blue 58, we take a moment to remember Bart Starr while trying to answer an important question. How do we properly talk about guys who played in such a different era of the NFL? Then, labor negotiations are beginning between the NFL and the Players Union, and you should be paying close attention. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdank, happy to be with you here yet again for another episode. And what an episode it's going to be. We've got to start off with something a little bit sad, but I think that's going to be uh, beneficial for for all of us, because I think this is an important conversation to have, especially for a franchise like the Green Bay Packers and being fans and whatever I am about the Green Bay Packers, a fan, sure, but covering it, am I a media person? Who knows? Uh, talking about it, we've got to be, I think, very historically literate. And the passing of Bart Starr gives us an opportunity to talk about that. It's been really, really cool over the past few days to watch the stories trickle out about Bart Starr, the player that he was, the person that he was, and the impact he had on so many different people. But I had a long talk with myself about how best to do our Bart Starr content, because that's what you do, right? When you run a Green Bay Packers website and podcast, everything is an opportunity for content. So Bart Starr passes away. What do we do? And a lot of sites seem to take the approach of, you know, fairly boilerplate stuff. And I don't blame anybody for that. That's probably the right decision. Not putting out content. I don't know if it's ever really the, the best thing you can do. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you a little bit. You lose out on traffic and any opportunities that come with that. But you want to make sure you're putting out the right kind of content. The right kind of stuff. The right kind of thing that's going to help your audience. At least that's our goal. So what do you say about Bart Starr? And I struggle with this because I only know Bart Starr, not even as a memory, He's more like a mythic figure for somebody my age. I'm going to be 31 here in a couple months. And, you know, I you're in the era that you're in. I grew up watching Brett Favre play, transition to Aaron Rodgers, the Ron Wolf Packers into the Mike Sherman era, into the Ted Thompson era, into whatever you want to call the era we're in now, the Lafleur Gutekunst era, maybe the Murphy era. I don't have a lot of firm connections to the Lombardi era. None, actually. No actual memories of it. That all happened long before I was born. And even the, the Bart Starr coaching era was long over by the time I was born. Everything I know about Bart Starr is stuff that I've either read or watched after the fact. It's all by somebody else, not an eyewitness sort of thing. So how do you remember guys like that? Something that's really popped into my mind over the past couple days, thinking about all these people saying nice things about Bart Starr, is how few of these stories were probably known at the time. There was no social media catching Bart Starr signing an autograph for somebody at, I don't know, in the airport randomly somewhere or a car dealership or 
some random run-in that you have with a celebrity that you see all the time on social media now. Hey, I met so-and-so. He was just a great guy. Just in the past couple of years, we've had a couple of great moments with Aaron Jones where he does some random act of kindness for somebody and it goes all over the internet because we see it, see pictures of it happening. Somebody tweets it out, whatever. We figure it out. We see the act kind of in progress, almost real time. All this stuff about Bart Starr is basically ancient history. So how do we remember guys like that? I think it's a question of history. It's all figuring out your history. And this, of course, is for people who didn't have the opportunity to see him play live. We have to, as fans, and as people who cover the Packers, be on top of our history. And when we're not on top of it, we have to know how to do it right. So how do you do it right? Well, I've got a good answer from one really specific person, Cliff Crystal, the historian for the Green Bay Packers. A couple of years ago, I sent him a message and he actually shared it, shared an answer to it in his Cliff Crystal mailbag. And I'd like to share both my question and his answer, as well as a couple other thoughts about historical research type stuff that I've done alongside of it. So my question, which was answered on the Packers website, let's see if I can find the exact date here, May 25th, 2017. So look at that, almost exactly two years ago to the date. So here's what I wrote. I was wondering if you had any pointers about writing history. What's your research process like? How do you document things properly? Is there a right way to go about it? Here's what Mr. Crystal said. I'm lucky. I had a grandmother and a high school history teacher who instilled in me a passion for history. I'm one of those boring folks who thinks a good movie is a documentary and only reads nonfiction. So like anything else, it all starts with having a passion for your work or hobby. First, research, research, research. That's the next part of the question, the equation. When it comes to Packers history, I'd recommend relying almost solely on original sources for information about the first three or four decades. If you want to learn more about the Lambeau years, for example, go back and read the daily newspapers um, from 1919 through 1950. Before I took this gig, I read 40 years of the Green Bay Press-Gazette and more than 50 years of the Milwaukee papers on microfilm and made copies and saved every story that included something newsworthy. Now the good news is you can find more and more newspapers online. While newspapers make mistakes and writers covering teams don't know or reveal everything, reading them would provide a good base. And the more you read, the more you'll be able to differentiate between the truth, what was written or said at the time, and myth, which usually results from someone claiming they remember something when they don't. Here's another benefit of reading old newspapers. You'll be able to get a feel for how things have changed over the years. One of the traps I have to constantly guard against is reading something and interpreting it in the context of today as opposed to when it happened. Here's an example. In 2005, I was on the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee when Benny Friedman, the most prolific passer of the pre-stats era, was elected. I thought Friedman was one of the best choices for the from the Hall's senior committee that they made during my 13 years of voting. But from 1929 through 1931, when Friedman played for the New York Giants and probably was at his best, the Packers won three straight NFL titles and were 4-1 against the Giants, who finished second by a half game in both 29 and 30. What was the difference between the teams? When I went back and read the newspaper accounts, especially in the New York papers, 
I came away with the distinct impression it was because the Packers' Vern Llewellyn had a much bigger impact as a punter and all-around back than Friedman had as a passer. Teammates averaged less than 10 points a game back then, and field position more than anything seemed to dictate offensive strategy. Based on old newspaper play-by-plays, Eric Gaska, author and Packers stat guru, recently created a play-by-play of the 1929 late-season Packers-Giants game that settled that year's title. According to Gaska, Llewellyn punted seven times and averaged more than 50 yards, including first-down punts of 75, 63, 43, and 65 yards. Llewellyn punted for 354 yards and also accounted for 84 yards passing, rushing, and receiving. Friedman accounted for 117 yards, second most of any player in that game. He ran 18 times for 5 yards and passed 14 times for 112 yards from the tailback position in a single wing. David Neft, one of the most foremost football historians of all time, researched Llewellyn's stats in much the same way as Gaska and found that he had punted more than 100 times in each of the of three straight seasons, including 136 in 1928. Jacob Schum punted 56 times last season. It's impossible to appreciate Llewellyn's greatness without some comprehension of how different things were, and few if any recently published books will provide that. Anyway, keep reading and enjoy what you do, and you'll become a more knowledgeable and better writer of history. So that's a long quote, but I think it's worthwhile. And a big thanks to Cliff Crystal, first, for answering that question, and second, just for being the kind of asset he is to the Packers uh, history community and the Packers community as a whole. Because like I said up top, the Packers are a team of history. And if you don't know this history, you're going to be worse off as a fan. A couple of key takeaways here from uh, what Cliff Crystal said. First, his point about research is absolutely critical. And there are Many, many resources now where you can actually read some of these primary sources online. Newspapers.com is a great resource. There is a cost associated with that. There's really no free way to use that site in any um, meaningful way. But the Google Newspapers archives have all of the Milwaukee papers dating back until well before the Packers were founded. So you can nose around in there and really find some interesting stuff. And I highly recommend doing that. Even if you're not writing anything history related, you get a real good sense, like he says in in his answer, of what things were like at the time. One thing that I'm always struck by is how different the conventions were about sports writing. Today, everybody writes basically the same story. In, in the, the business, you call the thing that you file right after the store or the game ends a gamer. It's just a, a basic play-by-play of what happened. Here's what happened. Here's why. Here's a couple salient points about, you know, why something might have happened, a little bit of context, and maybe a couple quotes real quick um, that somebody had to say after the game. You try to get it up online as quick as possible so you have the central part of your coverage done. Back in the early 20s, nobody did those. Nobody knew what they were. And so you go back and read about the Packers' first ever regular season game, and it's really hard to figure out the exact blow-by-blow of what happened because they're just all over the place. But that's how they wrote at the time. Football, professional football in particular, was really a novelty as much as anything. It was a sideshow. 
to baseball, to college football, to who knows what people were doing back then. Trying not to get cholera or something. Who knows? But it's important to see that at the time because that was what the team was like. Something that I get irritated by a lot is when people look at players kind of out of the context of their era. And I know we can do era-adjusted stats and things like that. I'm not sure I buy any of those things because there's so many assumptions built into how those stats work. But we're missing a big part of the picture when we don't look at these guys in context because the culture that was around these teams, talking about how they wrote or how they played and the writing that went on around them, that was the culture these guys lived in. They were not full-time football players. They were guys that would be reading the newspaper the next day. Probably knew some of the writers. They knew people who were at the game. It was family and friends. Understanding that that kind of stuff is super important. And the only way to get that is through research. So look for those primary sources. The second thing that I really like there is context. It's so important to get context for things. You can really only get context from people who saw these things happen firsthand. So I would like to build on his idea of context here. Sure, the primary sources are great and you should always refer to those. But sometimes not quite primary sources, but not quite secondary sources can be really great opportunities for learning as well. A book that I have read quite a bit of, I don't own it, but I've I've read it the relevant parts, the Packers parts, uh, was Pro Football's 100 Greatest Players. It was published way back in 1982, almost 40 years ago now. And it was written in part by George Allen, a longtime NFL assistant and head coach. He worked for the Bears, the Rams, and the Redskins through, through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, almost exactly in those decades. There's some variation, but he was a, a contemporary of a lot of the guys that he was writing about. And that sort of perspective is super important when you're trying to put guys in context. For instance, what he writes about Bart Starr is very, very interesting to me. First, because of what it says about Starr as a player, but second, about what it says about the the environment in which Starr played. Here's what he says about Starr. Again, this is a fairly long quote, but I think it's worthwhile. Bart Starr was technically perfect as a quarterback. He executed plays with precision. He had the touch of a fine surgeon and he cut defenses apart. He seldom called his own signals, but I can't fault him for that. He was smart enough to do so superbly and his audibles were almost always the right ones at the right times. He showed me a lot of fine leadership qualities. Vince Lombardi preferred calling the plays from the sidelines and Starr had the discipline to accept this and make the most of it. Green Bay had better running backs than, say, Unitas's Baltimore team and the Packers used the running game to set up their passing game very effectively. Once set up, Starr's passes were remarkably consistent and accurate. He was not the long passer Bradshaw has been, or even Unitas was, but Starr could throw the bomb effectively, and he was the master of all the short passes from sideline to sideline and across the middle. The only way we could ever hope to defense Unitas or Starr effectively was to mix up our coverages and show them a lot of different kinds of coverage because they executed the passing game so precisely you at least had to make them guess or gamble a little. My teams did well against Green Bay over the years because we gave it the extra effort needed. One time we defeated the Packers by intercepting Starr four times. That was difficult to do, but he could come back the next game and beat you by passing perfectly. 
those Green Bay teams of the 1960s had as much talent and as good of coaching as any as I've seen. But I give Starr a lot of the credit for the NFL titles the Packers won. He was the perfect quarterback for that team. Starr was as intelligent and disciplined a quarterback as professional football has had, end quote. So a couple takeaways there. He talks a lot about Starr's technical ability, which is something that you don't think about a lot with older or players from older eras. You don't think about the game being as refined, but Starr could clearly play it as a high level. He also offers up an interesting nugget there about Starr not calling his own plays. That conflicts with some other things that I've read elsewhere. First, um, well, I guess, I, I let me step back. It add some interesting context to things that I've read elsewhere. I have read early on that in the Lombardi era, Vince Lombardi was fond of switching his guards and using that as his play calling method. So he would rotate in uh, Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston and whoever else happened to be playing at guard and into different spots and get his play calls in that way. But we also know from later in Starr's career that there were extended times that uh, he did call his own plays. In the Ice Bowl, he did a lot of his his own play calling. We also know that Vince Lombardi was a tremendous control freak, as most football coaches are. And it's tough to believe that he would really fully sign off on anybody calling their own plays, even though he did at times. But also, we know that Vince Lombardi considered himself practically useless during games. He'd just get so worked up, and he would lose focus on the game planning that he did. So he would leave a lot of other things up to other people. He would just kind of come unglued during games and get a little bit distracted. All of this is important. And you can't use any one source as kind of a silver bullet that knocks down other things. The truth about what Bart Starr did and what Vince Lombardi did is probably somewhere in the middle. And you would need more sources to get that. But you're not getting any of this stuff from someone who wasn't there at the time. At least not as a a primary source. And Allen is a good source for something like that because... He was an assistant coach with the Bears for a lot of Star's run in Green Bay. He also wrote about guys like Paul Horning and Don Hudson, and I want to share a little bit of that with you too. Not that it adds anything to what we're talking about with Star, but just because I think it's crucially important Let's uh, to understand this stuff in context. Hudson predated what Allen did in the NFL, but Allen watched him as a fan growing up. And certainly would have been familiar with the, his legacy as a uh, someone who is downstream of Don Hudson. Here's what he said about Hudson. Hudson was the pioneer pass catcher. He blazed the trails over which others have followed. He had sprinter speed, but also improvised moves and devised patterns that have been copied ever since. As much as Sammy Baugh did, Don Hudson turned modern football into as much a passing game as a running game. He was enormously intelligent, talented, and resourceful, and he was fortunate to have had a passer like Arnie Herbert to team up with in those days. When I think of Hudson, I think of his fluidity. He just seemed to flow across the football field. He was slender and wore very few pads so as to be loose. He was very limber, and he had quick feet and sure hands. No defensive back of his day could keep up with him, and if the ball was within his reach, he caught it. And when he caught it, he ran with it like a great runner. End quote. So again, that's just stuff that you can't get from a box score or from watching grainy clips on YouTube. You can't see that much of the fluidity. You can't see how 
guys interacted with defensive backs. You have to have been there, and it's important to count on guys who were there. Finally, when you're talking about history, even when you're talking about somebody as beloved as as Bart Starr, don't be afraid to kick at the sacred cows a little bit. Be as respectful as you can, and I think that's important, but don't be afraid to push back a little bit. If you happen to sort through those newspaper archives and happen to find yourself in the late 70s, mid-70s, look for some interesting columns attached to a name that you might recognize. Bob McGinn, uh, the venerable Packers writer, had some great stuff about how Bart Starr interacted with the media. And I got to tell you, it's shocking to read some of the stuff about how he interacted with reporters who were critical of what he did as a coach. It seemed very out of character for the rest of what we know about Bart Starr. A little bit angry, maybe a little bit spiteful sometimes, and who among us wouldn't be that way when we're getting criticized and feel that we're being criticized unfairly. But it's interesting to see, in hindsight, the less perfect side of Bart Starr. And it doesn't make him a bad person. If the if the worst thing about Bart Starr is he got a little bit grouchy with reporters who may be a little bit on the um, persnickety side, let's say that, a little bit on the grouchy side themselves, I think you could you could do a lot worse. Another example that comes to mind along these lines is Ron Wolf. Anything that you read about Ron Wolf in I don't know, say the last 10 years or so, basically borders on like a hagiography, almost a religious text. Sure, he did some great work constructing the Packers, and the Packers wouldn't have been what they were in the Favre era or what they are today without Ron Wolf. All of that is true. But what almost never comes up is the back end of the Ron Wolf era. After the Packers went to that Super Bowl for the second time, the Packers never again advanced past the divisional round. In fact, after they lost that wild card game on the fraudulent catch by Terrell Owens preceded by Jerry Rice fumbling, it was quite a while before they made any serious noise in the playoffs again. It wasn't until 2007, more than a decade later, that the Packers advanced past the divisional round. They never won two playoff games in a single trip to the playoffs until Mike McCarthy came to town. And a lot of that was because of the contentious relationship between Ron Wolf and Mike Holmgren and how that all came apart. Holmgren left for Seattle because he wanted personnel sort of input only to have Ron Wolf say no because Ron Wolf was the personnel guy only to then see Ron Wolf turn around and make Mike Sherman the GM less than three years later what changed except for three years going by and couldn't have something been worked out on top of that the Packers weren't super great in the draft in that stretch they didn't sign any terribly impactful free agents. But because of what Ron Wolf did early on, all of that is forgotten. And if we're going to have a debate about wasting Aaron Rodgers' career, 
Ron Wolf needs to get brought into the conversation about wasting the back half of Brett Favre's career, or at least the middle third. And I know I've said at length before about how Brett Favre did plenty of his own wasting in there too, and that's all true as well, but Ron Wolf was on the scene as well. That shouldn't be discounted. And unless we're willing to challenge those sort of sacred institutions within our own team, we're not going to do a good job of being fans or people who cover this type of stuff. That all plays into how we remember Bart Starr. Get the information however you can. Research, 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 especially those primary sources. Then put it into context however you can. And don't be afraid to poke around on the more sensitive parts of the story. I'd like to switch gears entirely and talk for a second about these reports of labor negotiations getting underway between the NFL and the NFL Players Association. The New York Times today, Kevin Draper and Ken Bolson, has a piece titled, NFL Begins Moves to Avoid Another Labor War. Basically, this is a scene setter, identifying where all of the key players in this pending labor debate are now that we're a couple years out. The piece describes the situation now as an opportunistic move that could maximize its media revenue. The NFL has begun to push for a new labor agreement with the NFL Players Association. The piece is worth your time, and it comes across as fairly balanced, I think. But I think you should pay attention here. Pay attention very carefully to what happens with the players in this situation. One of the big sticking points the last time we did this entire labor negotiation thing was pay for veterans players. Veteran players. And the way the Players Association finally figured out a way to get more money for these veteran players was to essentially do away with the monster contracts that rookie draft picks were getting pre-2011. It was a wild time. There were some monster deals out there. It made Sam Bradford, among others, very, very wealthy. But the unintended consequence from that move was that the veterans didn't necessarily get that money that had been going to rookies. NFL teams just got younger and younger because the young players were cheaper and cheaper. It'll be interesting, I think, to see if the players are going to get squeezed again here. Because they gave up something through, I think, an unintended, an unintended consequence that is going to be very difficult for them to get back. And I'm not sure it can't happen again. Why is that? Well, it's hard to really sell your member players on any sort of risk to their livelihood. Dominique Foxworth, the former NFL Players Union president or chief or whatever the title is, has done some great stuff on Ryan Rosillo's podcast about how much this actually costs players. And the numbers aren't super important. But basically, in a situation like a labor strike, 
players who would be risking their money, their livelihoods, in hopes of getting more for everyone down the road, just can't make the numbers work to make a strike worth it. What they would stand to gain works out to be something, and I forget the exact numbers here. It's been years since since he, he shared the exact numbers, but it's essentially something like they're risking $200,000 to make $20,000 more over the balance of the rest of their career. It just is is not worth it on a player-by-player basis. And the players probably have some legitimate grievances. I'm certain that they do. Probably more guaranteed money, uh, among other things. Probably the end of the franchise tag. Probably some other adjustments to contracts that make things like trades easier. Those would all be things that the players might be interested in fighting for. But the cost of fighting for those things is very high. And if you think the NFL doesn't know that the cost is high, you're probably underestimating the league's lawyers. So it'll be interesting, I think, over the next couple of years to see if the league really goes after it here because they will always have the players in a vulnerable position. And it'll be interesting to see with a bunch of new money on the horizon in the form of new TV deals, new streaming deals, if the league doesn't try to squeeze the players even a little bit more. It's worth paying attention to, and even if it seems confusing, I think you owe it to yourself as a fan to try to pay as close of attention as you possibly can so you have an idea why some of these things are going to be happening. I'll try to do the best I can to bring that information to you. While I've got you here, I've got to call out a significant anniversary, not related to the Power Sweep or Blue 58, but not entirely unrelated either. The venerable website, uniwatch.com, and by extension, the whole UniWatch project, has hit a significant milestone. Paul Lucas, the head guy in charge there, has now been doing UniWatch as of this week for 20 years. And that is pretty pretty impressive. And he did a really interesting piece earlier this week on why he started this project. And basically, it came down to two things. First, no one else was doing it. And second, if they were doing it, if any was doing it at all, they weren't doing it the way that he wanted it done, among other things. Plus, he just really loved talking about uniforms. And so he started this website. It started as a column. It moved around to a few different publications and eventually it landed at ESPN and when they couldn't publish enough of his stuff, he started a spinoff blog, which is the UniWatch that we know today. My love for uniforms and all sort of ephemera of the Packers and the, the things that they wear on the field is pretty well known. And it's a part of what we do at the Power Sweep. And here on Blue 58, we talk about uniforms pretty regularly. I even had some wonderings just the other day about Aaron Rodgers and his potential new helmet. We are not UniWatch, of course, but I don't think it's that unusual to suggest, I don't think it's that out of line, to say that the Power Sweep and Blue 58 wouldn't exist without UniWatch. I've shared this story before, but this anniversary is a good example or a good opportunity to do it again. When I was either late in high school or early on in college, 
wondering what to do with my life. And I thought I might like to be a journalist or reporter or writer of some kind. So I looked up a bunch of writers and reporters that I liked and wrote them emails. I think Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk was on that list. I think, uh, let's see, Chris Mortensen I know was on that list. A couple other reporters, non-sports, were on that list. And Paul Lucas, whose UniWatch website I read every single day, was on that list as well. And of all the people that I reached out to, Paul Lucas was the only one who wrote back with any advice at all. He was the only one who wrote back at all. But the advice that he said, the advice that he gave me, I've never forgotten. And even though I can't find the email back, I remember exactly what he said. He said the first and most important thing that you have to remember is to write for yourself. Because if you wouldn't read what you're writing, nobody else is going to either. You got to write stuff that's interesting first and foremost to you. And I think that's what we've tried to do with the Power Sweep. This is stuff that I like. And it's stuff that reflects what I think is interesting and important about the Packers. And as this has grown, a lot of other people seem to have agreed that it's what they would like to listen to and read about as far as the Packers are concerned. But every time that we hit a big traffic milestone, I think for a second about that advice and how important it was that someone that I looked up to wrote that to me. And so here's what I'd like to say. In honor of UniWatch turning 20 years old, I think you should start your thing, whatever that may be. Is it a blog? Is it a newsletter? Is it a podcast? Whatever. You should start it. Every so often I'll see a crotchety take from somebody in the media talking about how there's too many podcasts or blogs or whatever. No, there's not. There's only too many when we stop listening to or reading them. And if you've got something to say, get out there and say it, unless it's like horrible racism or neo-Nazi stuff. Then keep it to yourself, please. Short of that, though, if you've got thoughts about something that you think is cool and interesting, put them out there. If nothing else, you get it out of your own head and share it with me. Share it with somebody. Get somebody else to read it. It doesn't even have to be good. More often than not, I wonder if the stuff that I'm writing and saying is good. And more often than not, it may not be, but who cares? We're all trying to build each other up here and trying to get what we think out there in the world. And if nothing else, writing will give you an opportunity to check yourself and see if the things that you're saying make any sense at all. So happy birthday, UniWatch. Now everybody else out there, get out there and start something like it. So all I've got you got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate anybody who takes the time to download one of these episodes. If you liked what you heard and want to help us keep it going, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. If you really like what you heard, give us some support on Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Power Sweep. A dollar a month offsets all of our hosting costs and helps us keep making great shows like this. Maybe even just good shows like this. And you can also check out our great supply of t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at ThePowerSweep.com. 
Drop us a line on Facebook, on Twitter, or via email. ThePowerSweep1959 at gmail.com is the address. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Every bit of feedback, every question you ask, whatever, is going to help us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping everyone become a smarter Packer fan. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.